And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. How's it going, everybody? And welcome to the Parish Pump Podcast. Councillor Dermot Daisy O'Brien here with you again, trying to bring some perspective, some insights, some analysis, and possibly to stimulate your own thoughts and feelings about certain issues in politics and society. So as you can imagine, or maybe you've noticed from the the name of the episode, I want to talk about thinking and feeling. And it may sound fluffy, and you may already be looking for the off switch to go and find something else more interesting, but give me a chance here. I think we might get somewhere with this. Um, So what I want to do is explore the relationship between thinking and feeling. Um, And I want to illustrate maybe and look at how they relate to politics and society and i really think they do and also if we get there i want to share maybe some thinking tools because i believe that the art of thinking is enhanced with tools Um, and maybe we'll get to the point where i I, I get a chance to share some of the faulty thinking patterns that, that come with cognitive bias and how that all relates to uh, how we engage with politics, but also how we get engage with wider societal issues. So let's find a start point. Uh, for me, the start point is this. Feelings come first. And that's, well, that's not my view. I think that's the scientific view. Um, but if we kind of zoom in on it a little bit, we'll get, you know, we'll get there because feelings activate thoughts. Um, and within feelings, there's usually a kind of a demand there. It, it puts the mind to work. So we feel first and we think second. Um, and in a way, we kind of use our thinking to move out of feelings. So the feelings kind of stimulate the thoughts and then the thoughts process the feelings and then we move on. Um, and that, yeah, that can be a very quick and instant thing or in, depending on the context, it can be something where you really have to consciously do that. Um, and we see that across any you know, society in any sense. So if we're talking about well-being, mental health, uh, it plays a role there. If we're talking about our attitudes and our views towards issues, um, it also is, is relevant there. But even if we you know, go back to childhood or babies, babies feel first um, and they, act, they communicate according to the feelings that they have, whether they are um, physical or uh, emotional or they're inside in, in terms of what their need might be. Um, and then the parents respond and react. And over time, the job of parenting is to support the development of thoughts and to encourage experience um, as a way of and facilitate experiences so that children, as they grow, uh, apply the thinking that complements the feelings that they have. Um, and the, the one way that comes to my mind when we're, you know, when you're a child and you have to get your vaccination needle for the first time and the fear is real because you've never had a needle before in a conscious sense and everyone tells you it'll be grand, it, it, it's only a little pinprick, blah, 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 blah. And they're trying their best to get, you know, to help you feel comfortable or to really approach this in a way that, you'll get through it um but ultimately uh, what you have is the fear and maybe you'll take on board a little bit maybe not and then it happens you get the the needles maybe it's one two or three um and you realize then that it wasn't such a big deal in the moment 
uh, again, we have a maybe based on the thoughts that we've had beforehand or the influence of the people who have kind of or maybe inside ourselves, we don't want to scream or cry or melt down in front of people. And they're all part of our character traits. But ultimately, we get the needle and most of us realize it's not so bad. And hopefully that then sets a platform for future needles, again, depending on the size and the location. But that experience helps us in our thoughts and in terms of how we might feel the next time that we have to get a needle. Are we making sense? Hopefully so. Um, and then as childhood progresses, what something that really fascinates me in, in my youth work or my education world is um, when we then look at issues in society and we, we wonder how young people's thoughts and feelings develop. And we kind of know that in childhood that happens in the home. So the influence of the home is prevailing. It is probably the strongest influence on a child. School to a degree, absolutely. But when it comes to societal issues and the narrative around them, the attitudes around societal issues, usually the home is the is the influencer. Um, and it can be a, a, a concrete influencer or um, or maybe just a kind of vague and passing influence. So if, if for example, if um, we look inside the home and we wonder about the conversations or the attitudes towards key societal issues, such as, let's say, uh, asylum seekers, refugees, or LGBT, um, or we may, you know, something, climate is another one, or travelers, or kind of issues that are prevailing in society where we are not there yet in terms of the positive development of society. Um, and yet within the news feeds and the newspaper and the conversations, there are still, uh, there's a spectrum of attitudes towards those issues. Um, and if you're in, in a home where every time something comes up on the news that the head of the household uh, or senior people in the household are articulating negative vibes about that issue um, and are kind of manifesting the, the feelings associated when something comes up on the news or a conversation begins about a certain scenario. Um, and it could be, you could say, let's take an example. Uh, if someone asks about uh, giving money to homeless people um, and it, someone might say, well, it depends on what color skin they have because there are certain types of homeless people who are in the industry uh, of taking money and they're not real, inverted commas, homeless um, and that is a prevailing attitude then. Um, and, you know, for me, it's our thoughts then as we develop. Uh, my answer to that would be, have you ever thought about human trafficking? And maybe that will stimulate a different thought process, which may, you know, anyone who thinks about human trafficking knows it's a horrific uh, scenario where people's lives are in the control of others. And it's almost like modern slavery. Um, and if you consider that it's possible that someone who's begging um, or is out on the street looking for money and happens to be um, not of Irish descent and potentially has been trafficked from another part of the world into Ireland and is under the control and manipulation of somebody for whom the money that they collect is their profit and what they get in return is, is whatever. A roof over their heads or a little bit of pocket money. There's something about the thought process so that the feeling that comes to someone when they hear, 
about uh, beggars that are from another part of Europe and are just over here to take, take, take. And they're not real. They're not authentic. They're not legit. Um, unless we have a... And that, that the feelings that creates might be resentment. And it kind of falls into the trap of they're not one of ours. Um, and yet, if we apply a different thought process, such as, is it possible that somebody who's begging is part of a scenario where human trafficking has occurred? then will that change our feelings towards that scenario and possibly ultimately our behavior and our reactions to those scenarios. So I think that's a, like a, that's where our feelings and our thoughts have this ongoing um, relationship. And I think it's really important um, that we consider that, that we consider how they in- interact with each other and how um, f- you know, the feelings come first and as we grow and develop, um, you know, a young person could be within a household um, and there's these ongoing vibes about a, a social issue. And then uh, they hit teenage years and they find themselves in a youth club or at a youth event or perhaps when they end up in college and they meet a tutor or there's a youth worker in their lives who presents scenarios in a different way and gives new perspectives um, to something. And perhaps then that might shift the feelings for that teenager um, away from what was the only thing they've ever got before um, and into somewhere new. And that might be uncomfortable. And there may even be then thought conflict going on in your mind. But at home, what I hear is da, 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 da. Um, so what, which one is true or which one should I believe? Or you know, how, how do I manage this? Um, and what we notice, uh, those of us who have the privilege of working with young people a lot, is that Eventually, young people decide to form their own thoughts and their and the feelings that they have then uh, stimulate uh, with the tools a new way of thinking. And, you know, the challenge could be that if you go back home into an environment where the thinking hasn't changed and the feelings are still negative, then do you take a role in trying to shift the feelings and the thoughts that uh, that accompany them in the home? Or do you have to find a happy medium? And again, it's that's it's easy to say, but not easy to do. Um, we all probably have, uh, especially during the perhaps the repeal or the marriage equality referendum, where we had the grandparents who aren't there yet in terms of their feelings about uh, LGBT or same-sex marriage um, or abortion, and the thoughts that they've been programmed to have about those issues. And yet we, we took that on and we're not, we're, you know, I don't know if people out around Ireland in particular were, were saying, I don't want to have anything to do with my grandmother anymore or my granddad or my dad or my uncle because their views um, are not the same as mine. But if we open up, if we don't have the conversations or if we don't apply some of the tools that are available to us, and that's what campaigning does, is that it opens up the possibility to park those feelings, maybe shift them a little bit because you don't need to have them. You don't need to have, um, you know, like, like if you go into the past, uh, there was probably a level of disgust at homosexuality as a concept. And that was, again, that's that was programmed into us um, by the way our society was run. But that isn't prevailing anymore. So we have to replace that with something else. Um, and we have to uh, add the thoughts that support the change in the feelings. And I think that's that's really important. And it's an ongoing piece of work. 
Um, and it happened during those campaigns. It happened where like rational conversations or uh, creative campaigning or authentic uh, influencing um also within those campaigns there was a level of influence which was light and and dignified and had a basis in some science and some positive emotions and this general sense of shared humanity being at the the baseline when we're talking about our feelings and our thoughts about issues that are uncomfortable um so there's when we take this into the political world and this is probably the the stimulation for this uh this particular podcast um, and we look at the current national picture in Ireland at the moment. Um, and I want to kind of play out a scenario as a way of just kind of helping us maybe uh, see this relationship between thinking and feeling. Um, so here's a scenario. And it's obviously it's a true scenario is that Sinn Féin in the last in GE 2020 uh, did far better than expected in general terms. And the amount of seats that they gained placed them alongside the historically uh, considered two big parties in Ireland. So now, after the general election, there are three more or less equal in terms of seats, big parties in Ireland. And if we think about, if we consider the feelings of the establishment or the establishment parties after that result, where does it take us? What do we imagine they were feeling? And again, Probably in some instinctive level, there's a level of disgust. It's an shock and horror, possibly. Um, and because it was somewhat unexpected, um, those feelings are probably strong. And because there was no preparation for that scenario as such, um, the reaction is going to be quite real, I imagine, in the minds of, of the establishment, whether it's existing TDs, those who lost their seats, party members um, or those in, in society who align themselves with the established or establishment parties. Um, so those feelings kick in when people are looking at RTE and they've seen the numbers and they're, it's all over the shop. It's in the news. Uh, it's very, you know, the number of poll toppers that were like not expected in any sense. Um, so the feelings kick in and then what thoughts follow them? Uh, and I think that's where we, we get into an interesting space because the thoughts then influence the reaction. Um, and I think on some, so, so there's the thoughts are already there that Sinn Féin are A, B and C. They're not uh, worthy of being in government. They're not legitimate on some level as a political party. Um, they have no right to be um, the biggest party in the country and you know these thoughts and and they are not fit to govern and da, 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 da. so these are thoughts that accompany those feelings in general but this is a scenario where a moment has happened where the shock factor adds um to the reaction and the feelings are very very acute uh, so if we add some layers to this scenario uh, i think it gets more interesting so if we consider the voters of ireland and their thoughts and feelings which stimulated them to make a decision about who they voted for. And perhaps many of them didn't vote before and chose to vote and voted Sinn Féin. Perhaps a number of them voted for other parties in the past, but decided this time to vote for Sinn Féin. And that's significant. And obviously that then manifests itself in huge numbers and big change in terms of the ultimate 
number of seats. And there are other parties who kind of fit into that frame as well, where they gained more than they did the last time. Um, and that was obviously connected to the campaigning and the things that resonated with the voters across Ireland um, insofar as it changed perhaps how they might have voted um, or their attitude towards voting at all. Um, so what we have is this massive shift and people, you know, within the campaigning world, um, the thing that captured people's attention was this idea of change. And again, that's uh, that stimulates feelings because it says, do you need change? How do you feel about change? And then the thoughts that come with that within campaigning is a combination of what needs to change and why and what does the future look like and what do you want to feel about the future of Ireland and who do you think might deliver that? Um, and that's where it becomes fascinating in terms of campaigning. And then when, when the results are delivered, what you have is, you know, on some level, the establishment um, are confused and, uh, you know, their instinct might be to say the voters are wrong. What's wrong with those people? Why did they vote that way? That's this is incomprehensible. Um, and they're confused then alongside their disgust. Uh, and and here's where it becomes risky, because if if the establishment parties consider that the voters had a howler there and there's something wrong with them. Then their reaction, and as we've seen it play out, their reaction is to sit down and go, we need to re-stimulate the voters, change their feelings so that their thought processes change accordingly and they change their mind about the decision that they've had. Um, or And if another election comes along or a, diff or a government is formed that is unexpected in terms of the establishment coming together, which they don't really do uh, historically, uh, what they're doing is trying to lay a foundation for to dismiss the decisions that that voters have made. And how do you do that then? And that's where, again, it becomes more risky is that the, the, the establishment machine decides that we need to reprogram the thoughts of people. And we'll do that by stimulating their emotions and their feelings. Um, and and what will that look like? It'll be in the most basic sense, uh, shame on you for making that decision. Shame on you for choosing a party that is associated with A, B, or C. You've, you're wrong. You've done wrong there. And so we all know what it feels like to have shame. And for someone else to tell you that you should be ashamed uh, is a fairly significant trigger. Um, and sometimes it works. It, you know, Shame is a powerful, powerful thing. And people use it to control. And people use it to manipulate. Um, so that was, uh, you know, to, in my humble view, that was the kind of basic narrative that came out. Uh, and it was it was a strategy. So you're trying to build this narrative about a mistake you did wrong, it's, you're not, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And what's the reaction to that? Um, and what we've seen is fascinating because the electorate were not available um are in the mood to, to accept this judgment from the parties for whom they don't believe have done a good job on their behalf, haven't represented them, don't represent a future of change that is positive for everyone. So what happens with the electorate then, the voters, is that they might say, well, shame on you, A, for 
for judging us on our decision. But hold on, let's remember and remind ourselves of all of your failures. And so the electorate becomes more entrenched um, in its own view, and it then reacts towards those who are preaching and are presuming to tell you that you're right or wrong. Um, and it, there's specifics in there, so it's not vague, it's not generalized. It could be shame on you, uh, depending on people's individual experience. So someone could say, well, shame on you for my grandmother being on a, on a trolley in a corridor of a hospital. Shame on you for the, the cervical uh, scandal. Same, shame on you for the children's hospital. Shame on you for the health service, for education. So there's enough there for people to identify and connect with in terms of um, the, the reaction that, that solidifies and justifies their original decision, which was to vote for Sinn Féin. Um, and, and that's fascinating. And then there are other levels within that, um, within that strategy that says, well, you know, if, if, the, if the shame doesn't work, then they had another layer of this party are not fit for government. This party are not capable of governing. Uh, you should be afraid. You should feel fear at the thought of this party being in government. Um, so that's another narrative that's kind of put out there across uh, all the communication channels that, like, you know, stimulating the fear and then telling people what the thoughts they should have about this particular party. Um, and then, you see, again, you see the electorate. And for me, there's something really interesting about the evolution of the engagement within this uh, election in particular of, of people whereby they're able to say, no, like we already fear the future with you in government because your record tells us that the future is bleak. Um, so again, when pe people already have the thought process that informs, so if you're trying to stimulate a fear feeling about change, um, the electorate on, on many levels are reacting to that with a sense of no that's you're you're trying to apply a fear to us uh which does not eclipse the fear that we're already feeling so don't do that um, and i suppose what what all of this does is uh we all no, nobody knows whether we're moving towards another election um or what how it might play out in terms of the formation of a government um and i suppose these the strategic some might say this is all part of the game of politics um, but I think that when you create this fracture between elected reps or those who are part of the party machines, um, if you create a fracture between the decision making of the voter and the end result, and you, you try to give a sense that the voter, that a cohort of voters are wrong, then you're, you're really creating fractures within politics that, are, that aren't healthy, uh, ultimately. Um, because if we can't, as a democracy, accept the outcome and appreciate that the outcome gives a mandate to all of those elected, um, then what does that say about our sense of our democracy? If we try and tell people that one particular element within our political landscape is not fit for per not fit to govern, not acceptable, um, when that same entity um, is governing on another part of our island and has found a way, uh, despite in amongst all the struggles and all the challenges and all the, the conflict, 
has found a way uh, and has refound ways to govern together with those who are of different uh, ideology or different viewpoints or different um, historical uh, backgrounds. So there's, you know, and, it, you know, this isn't something that just is happening in Ireland or is new to the world of politics. And that's the, so for me, when we're thinking of how do we transcend this, how do we navigate our way into a future political landscape that's healthy for everyone? That isn't like we don't want to homogenous all the same. I think the differences uh, are what create the dynamic for good decision making. Um, and if we, you know, it's not it's not long ago when, you know, Nelson Mandela was a, an imprisoned, despised terrorist leader of a, a movement that were trying to overthrow a government or, or create change within a second class, even third, fourth class uh, level of society um, that within the ANC they're, they're, they're moved towards change. But this same guy is now one of the most revered figures in history for his pursuit of peace, uh, his change making and his, his attitude towards change and his, the values that he, that he brings to that world. What was, what's his quote? It, uh, it's, it always seems impossible until it's done. And I think there's with, for me, the thing about, about Mandela was that his sincerity and the authenticity within which he went into these arenas where change needed to happen, but they are riddled with pre-existing conflict and attitudes um, that were, that really kind of had a basis in the dehumanization of a whole group of people, uh, and yet he persevered and he pursued uh, change not at the expense of of those who were perpetrating um, this negativity, but with the with a vision for all um, and i think yeah that might, might sound uh, elaborately fluffy in terms of irish politics and you know we're a first world country but it, still we have people living in poverty we have people suffering and struggling every single day and we have people who don't have a positive vision for the future so when they elect uh, tds to our doll then it's on those tds to collectively uh, battle it out to find a vision for Ireland that is worth pursuing uh, and at the core of that for me it's it, like it, there is that thing about power and we do have to wonder about what drives uh, politicians um, and like the, the three key questions for me are always why do you want power uh, you as an individual or your party uh, how will you serve the people and that's all the people not just the people who voted for you all the people because that's the comp the first compromise you must make as a politician when you're elected is that you serve not just the people who voted for you, you serve all the people. Um, and then it's like, what will you do about the big issues? So that how, that why, how, what is, is critical. What will you do? And again, the cynicism is alive and well in politics where people, um, yeah, you can say what you'll do. And the best predictor of what you will do is what you have done. And that can sometimes be a hard barrier to overcome uh, when there's so much negativity in the past. But the challenge remains. Uh, and I think the, the whole, like we're still in the midst of that 
thinking and feeling. And I think I believe that the Irish electorate has really grown within this campaign. And when and, it, you know, if we keep and maintain that connection with the electorate and the engagement in politics and that we use this as a platform to continue that and not do things in spite of them or separate to them, that we maintain engagement with people, then our politics will be healthier than ever before, I believe. So I'm going to finish by doing like sharing some of the thinking tools that have served me so well in my whole life. Uh, first one is the the great Edward de Bonnell's six thinking hats. And I've used these in so many different contexts. And what they are are tools for thinking. And what he calls it is full spectrum thinking. So when you have a decision to make and it's big um, and you use the thinking hats, then that gives you the scope to have full spectrum thinking before you make a decision or before you engage in something where you have to be on your toes. So the thinking hats really quickly, um, there is blue, which is the thinking about thinking. So that's kind of like thinking meta about the structure of the thinking that you need to do, why you need to do it, how you're going to do it. And then each of the five other hats represent a, a one framework for the thinking that that's needed. And you do them individually and with equal value, because then at the end you have this full spectrum of thinking, which is uh, is useful for you so we have the black hat which is about judgment and negativity what's wrong with this uh, what are the negatives within this decision that has to be made um, we have the white hat which is about facts and information what are the facts what information is available to me what information might be missing um, we have the red hat which is about feelings and emotions and it's probably the hat we wear the most um, what are your feelings about this scenario or about this decision that has to be made. Um, we have the yellow hat, which is the positivity. Um, what's good about this? Uh, what's positive about this? What is the potential of this? Um, and you map it out and give it its, its equal measure. Um, we have the green hat then, which is about the creative possibilities. Uh, what are the creative possibilities within this decision or within this issue? Um, that we're mapping out and those are the six thinking hats and they become so useful when you're sitting down and you have to make a decision because when you map them all out alongside each other then you've got a full picture if you just go wear the red hat and you're just going in full-on emotion emotion then you might follow a, a pathway that at some point someone will give you a white hat thinking that then helps you to realize that you've just wasted a whole journey of thinking Whereas if you had have done that at the beginning or done that at a, a stage where it was valued, uh, then that would be that would have been useful. Um, so the sixth thing I recommend, look, look them up. You'll get a thousand different images and models and explanations for them online, but well worth using. Uh, I used to have them uh, on the walls of my office so that I could kind of just tap in and have that stimulation uh, to help me with decision making. And the last one that I'm going to do and share with you is a piece of work that we did um, when we developed uh, the, the Climate Revolution Education Resource for the National Youth Council of Ireland. And there's a page in there, uh, page 26, 27, that talks about cognitive biases. Um, and that's about this kind of maybe faulty uh, or the, the traps that you might fall into when you are thinking. And to be like to be aware of them can be such an asset because then you even you, like knowing that they exist and knowing the names of them can help you realize I'm in a trap here and I need to shift 
uh, because otherwise this might end up negative for me or for others. Um, so let me just flow through them real quick and give you a sense. Uh, confirmation bias. So that's one, uh, which is paying more attention to people or ideas that you agree with. So you confirm what you already agree with. You, you kind of fall into the trap of like, yeah, that, you don't scrutinize, you don't think twice, you just fall into line with the ideas or people that you already agree with. Uh, negativity bias is, is a big, big one in society. And I don't know whether uh, that's, I don't know, is that, is that cultural or, you know, but in negativity bias, you pay more attention and remember the things that are negative. Uh, so you're not kind of balanced. You're not looking for balance. You're just kind of locked into the negativity stuff. Uh, the bandwagon effect, uh, which probably uh, explains what it is in the title. So that's kind of, you go, just go with the flow. You believe what the majority of other people believe. So you just jump on the bandwagon because that's the most comfortable place for you. Um, there's one called the Dunning-Kruger effect, uh, which is was a new one for me when we were doing the research. Um, and that's a kind of this thing about unskilled people overestimating their ability um, and experts doubt themselves so it's just about you know being mindful that if you have if someone has this 100% stance on something uh, kind of you know take a moment to you know consider "Ah, is that possible can you have a 100% stance on something Uh, so pinch of salt is an expression that goes with that I would say Um, then there's outcome bias which is um, judging your decision based on the outcome uh, instead of the quality of the decision when it was made. Um, we have the IKEA effect, which is a cracker, um, which is when you place a disproportionately high value on the things that you personally create or assemble. So if you've put all the effort into coming up with this idea yourself, um, then you're going to put a high value on it because it's yours. Um, there's the illusion of truth effect, Um this kind of sense of identifying statements as true simply because you've heard them before. And that's this kind of, again, that, no, I heard that somewhere before. That's true. Um, risky. Do your research, take responsibility, and be critical in your thinking. Um, there's the shared information bias, which is about this uh, tendency to discuss information that everyone in the group knows. Um, so we kind of, it's like an echo chamber, I suppose, that, we're not really going into the stuff that we don't know. We're just kind of doing this merry-go-round of everything that we already do know. Um, and we just keep sharing that around because it feels good. Uh, two more. There's authority bias. Um, that's this. Again, we, we're programmed to do that, I think, in society in terms of our education institutions and, again, leadership structures, that thinking that authority figures are always right, no matter their expertise. So if someone is a doctor... And they say something about abortion, then you and you're not really sure what type of doctor they are, but because they have this title, uh, and they want you to just believe in their authority and therefore believe in what they say, um, and that's again risky business. And some people try consciously try and manipulate that that type of uh, cognitive bias. And the last one is the curse of knowledge. And it's an inability to put yourself in someone else's shoes who doesn't possess the knowledge that you do. And I really, really like this one because it's it's this challenge to say, I know stuff and I've done the research, I've done the thinking, I've done the, you know, I I think it's a big one for climate change because if you go then to someone who hasn't got a notion, hasn't got the headspace, hasn't had the time, has too much going on or for whatever reason, 
can't think on the same level as you do about climate, then you either, do you dismiss them for being ignorant and stupid and uneducated? Or do you take a role to say, how do I make my knowledge accessible to them? Because there might be a barrier there. And overcoming that barrier is a great, great feeling because that, and, and in the world of education and youth work, I think that's a huge responsibility on us. So they're the cognitive biases. Um, and yeah, check them out. Like it's for me, like there is a thing about becoming more aware and that being an asset to you. So I just recommend um, that people kind of pay attention to some of the thinking traps uh, or some of the manipulation that might be out there in terms of what you should feel and how that should connect with your thinking um, and let's see how it all plays out in our political arena over the coming weeks and possibly months thanks so much for listening in and i'll talk to you all soon take care <laughs>